1: Welcome to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. And today it's open mic day. So it's whatever you guys want to talk about. I want to talk about it with you. You can give us a call at 1877 MPB Ring. It's 1-877-672-7464. As always, you can send me an email at fit at mpbonline.org. And we'll be back after the news.
2: This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Good
1: morning. Welcome back to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio I'm your host, Dr. Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. And today is just Josie in the booth, so we are running open mic, open topic. That's whatever questions or, or comments that you guys have, I would love to hear those and talk um, with you about those things. Our number is one mpb ring It's one 672 ring 7464. You can always email me. That email is fit at mpbonline.org. And I'm happy to take those either way. One of the first things we're going to start off with today while we wait on some callers to call in is just stuff I've been seeing in in the news on some of the news feeds i subscribe to and things that are out there floating around that I know you've probably seen either on social media or on actual news websites and kind of go through those and why they're news and what we need to do about them. The, the first one we're going to talk about is, is a hashtag that's going around called hashtag don't kiss the baby. And it, that sounds like a no-brainer, um, not not kissing random people's babies. It sounds like a good way to get punched. Uh, if you kiss my baby, even though they're not babies anymore, that's probably what would happen and it definitely would have when they were little. But the, the reason that that hashtag is around is to raise awareness about the transfer of respiratory infections from well-meaning folks to little tiny babies who are, you know, a little lower on the immunity scale um, than uh, an older child or an adult would be. So um, there have been lots of posts on Facebook, Instagram, uh, Twitter, with stories of families that have children that have been affected by, um, by these respiratory illnesses. The big one, um, well, really big two this time of the year um, are respiratory syncytial virus, which is RSV, probably what you've heard it called. And of course, influenza. Now, there are just hundreds and thousands of different um, pathogens that can cause the sniffles and the cold type symptoms in children and in adults. And oftentimes, we don't know exactly which one uh, is causing the problem. And it's pretty... Low key, you know, you got some snotty nose and don't feel good. A little bit of low grade fever, or cough, and that's kind of what we tip, think about the typical cold. But with RSV in little ones, in particular, kids that are under the age of two are the ones most at risk for um, bad. a a worse outcome with RSV. Now adults can get RSV, older kids can get RSV. A lot of times it's just kind of a nasty cold and you move on from it. But these little ones uh, have a a much harder time with RSV. And that's for a variety of reasons. But one of the the big reasons is the fact that their airways are just smaller. When you think about um, the size of the the tubes that we breathe through, in our lungs, they, the diameter is just much, much smaller for little ones. And the deal with RSV is one of the things that happens with this particular virus is the um, kind of the lining of some of those airways starts to kind of slough off and break down and makes gunk. And, you know, in my airway, in, in an adult's airway, a little bit of gunk is not going to completely stop that thing up. But in a little tiny one, it's got little tiny airways, Um, a little bit of gunk can really impair their ability to get air in and get air out, Um, which is often why you, uh, if you've ever been around a child who has RSV, which is um, oftentimes called bronchiolitis as well, which is inflammation of the little tiny airways, it it sounds very crunkly, junkly sounding. They That's a very technical medical term that I just pulled out there, crunkily, junkily. You may hear nurses say, that baby sounds junky. And that's what we're talking about. There's just kind of wet goo hanging out in those airways, and it sounds very congested uh, and very um, wet-sounding in there. And so babies, for various reasons, may wind up in the hospital with RSV, Um, one of the the more serious things that lands them in there is the ability to get oxygen to the little tiny sacs in the lungs and if they can't do that then they can't can't breathe you can't get the oxygen to your cells and you can't get the carbon dioxide out and those babies will often wind up having to be on a ventilator which puts a whole nother set of risks um, then in on that baby um, with um, if, if that doesn't happen, so they, they don't uh, have that significant of an impairment in breathing, um, they may just not eat and drink well because uh, babies in particular breathe out of their nose. And when they get an infection like this, their nose is often full of snot. And so when their nose is full of snot and then you stick a bottle in their mouth for them to drink or if they're breastfeeding and they start to suck on that, And their nose is thopped up, they can't breathe. And so because we are designed to live, we will just stop eating so that we can breathe because breathing trumps the eating. And so little ones will often get dehydrated or start to lose weight from this as well. And so sometimes they're just admitted to the hospital for um, hydration to keep them from being dehydrated. But all in all, no matter what is going on, it is a rough uh, type of infection for these little ones to deal with. Um, my, let's see, my oldest son is 10. He was um, a preemie. He, was, he came um, roaring into this world about six weeks too soon. And so premature babies are at an increased risk for um, complications of RSV. Uh, and then my youngest son, he was on time, but about, let's see, probably about five years ago. So that would be when my oldest was five and my youngest was two. They both had RSV at the same time. And that was just And Even being a nurse, that was just really, really hard to watch. Um, Watch my kiddos go through that, managing all the breathing treatments that were going on with that situation and trying to keep them um, hydrated and safe. So all that being said, that's why we, we have this movement going on that says hashtag don't kiss the baby. Now, I think that that should go a little bit farther and just be hashtag don't touch the baby. Um, with any part of your body because um, babies, the way they learn about their environment is by tasting and putting things in their mouth. And so if you cough and you don't cough into your elbow or into a tissue or into your shirt, something like that, if you cough into your hand, which you know, I'm I am the social patrol. I'm watching everybody's cough etiquette when we're out places, and I will actively move to a different part of the store if I see you just hacking into your hands. Um, you've got all those germies on your hands now, and then you go up to Sweet Baby, and you want to um, kind of um, grab their little hand because it's so sweet when they wrap their little fingers around your hand, and you want to touch on them. Well, now those germs are on Baby's hand, and... Uh, now baby's hands go in their mouth. And we've got the transfer of those germs, whether it be RSV, the flu, or just the common cold. those are just respiratory illnesses. There's a big bad stomach bug going around right now too and we sure don't want that for our little ones or for anybody. Nobody has time for the stomach virus. That is miserable and terrible. So, you know, always um, think before you just reach out and and touch babies. You know, if the mom or dad um, has not asked you to hold the baby, then it's probably best just not touch the baby and don't get offended if they ask you to use hand sanitizer or wash your hands before you hold that baby. It's really, just it's a life and death situation it can be in certain instances uh, so um, that's kind of my spiel on hashtag don't kiss the baby and and just don't don't touch the baby all right we're going to go to Belexi and talk with Craig this morning hello Craig hello how are you
0: Oh, I'm doing fine. Uh, I was wondering if there are recommendations for kids who are sniffling and if you can blow your nose too hard or anything like that or if there's any, like, real problems with that.
1: Yeah. So um, it seems like with kids they either always have the sniffles or have just gotten over the sniffles or are about to get the sniffles. Um, Especially this time of the year, they're always stopped up. The first um, question or first thing to think about is, Is there actually snot in there or is the tissue inside the nose just kind of inflamed and swollen? And so if you're blowing your nose and you're not really getting a lot of stuff out of it, um, then it's probably just that the tissues are kind of puffy and swollen in there. And that's why you feel so congested. Um, If it is if the nose is kind of actively running, then we have to think, do I really want to to stop it, you know, things like antihistamines can dry up um, a runny nose, but if we think that there's an infection at all, so a cold or um, flu virus, anything like that, or a sinus infection, we tend to not want to use uh, antihistamines because that just makes that infection stuck in the nose a little bit more. Um, in particular with kids uh, really under the age of 4 we try not to use a whole lot of any of those types of things like antihistamines and decongestants and and cough medicines um, because there are some risks associated with that in the younger ones so kind of my tips for dealing with the sniffles, one is hydration, so making sure that we um, are drinking enough water. Um, In little kids you can do some you know dilute juice as well, Pedialyte, those types of things because the more hydrated You are the thinner that snot is going to be, and it'll be easier to blow it out. Um, As far as blowing your nose too much, you really what would happen is irritation in in the nose and so we see that really this time of the year because um, the, we've cut the heat back on and that kind of dries everything out and so those nasal passages will get drier and when we blow our nose we may see a little bit of blood in there so using some nasal saline is a good option to keep everything good and moist in there as well as just a little bit either Vaseline or a little bit of Bactroban which is an antibiotic ointment that you can get on a um, just on the end of your finger, kind of just around the inside of the nose will keep that good and moist in there as well.
0: Oh, uh, Okay.
1: All right. Anything okay. else that help?
0: Uh, no, that'll help. help. I just wanted it in... I remember blowing my nose so hard, it seemed like air come out of my eyes.
1: <laughs> well, all of those passages are connected. So the nasal passages uh, and up into the sinus cavity and into the ear. So sometimes when you blow hard like that, if the sinuses are stopped up, you will feel kind of like your ears pop or feel pressure behind your eyes. Um, so that that's true. Doesn't really do a lot of, um, not really a problem um, per se with that, but it will feel that way.
0: Oh, Okay. All
1: right. Thank you. You're welcome. All right. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, I'm happy to take more of your uh, calls for your questions or your comments. It's open topic. So whatever you guys want to talk about. And I want to talk about some neti pots as well when we come back. So if you want to give us a call, that number is 1-877-MPB-RING. It's 1-877-672-7464. Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, and we are taking any of your questions today. It is open topic, so if you have a question about anything and everything, uh, within some reason there, I'd be happy to answer those questions. Um, our number is mpb ring It's one 672 7464 and my email is fit at mpbonline.org. Before the break, we were talking about um, how to not spread infection to our tiniest little humans and keep them as healthy as we can um, this uh, cold and flu season. We also had a caller who asked about sniffles and ways to deal with that, and that kind of leads me into the next thing that has really been up in the news. Um, And that's about neti pots. So we have talked about sinus rinses on this show a lot because I love um, the use of sinus rinses. But you may have seen uh, this news article. Uh, Time picked it up and was carrying it as well as most of the other major um, news sources for a woman in Seattle who used a neti pot and contracted an amoeba in her brain and ultimately died from that. And so um, I've gotten a fair amount of questions sent to me through social media that have asked about that because we do talk about uh, Natty pots uh, a lot on the show. We, we talked about them when we had ENT on a couple of weeks ago. And so is that a, a, a dangerous thing for us to be doing? And just like we've talked about every single time we've talked about neti pots, it depends on how you do it and how uh, the the steps you take to prevent infection. So a neti pot, if you're not familiar with it, it looks like a little genie um, lamp that you put uh, water and a salt solution in and you can kind of tip it up. Uh, one side of your nose, let it run through um, the nasal cavity and out the other side, and it washes, you know, snot and gunk and, you know, dust particles and allergens and all that kind of stuff out. Um the one that I actually prefer is not the, the pot variety. It is the squeeze bottle variety because it, with the, the neti pot, you just get kind of gravity. Just what goes in kind of comes back out without any pressure. Um, with the squeeze bottle, you actually get a little force behind that to help blow some of that Thicker gunk that's in your sinuses or in that nasal cavity out through there. So the bottle version is the one that I usually recommend for patients and the one that I prefer. So how we use that safely and not get brain eating amoebas is a uh, something we always want to do. And it it boils down to cleanliness of your um, device, whether that be the neti pot, whether that be the squeeze bottle. Got to keep that thing good and clean. So you know, washing with hot soapy water, you. Can some of them are even um, uh, able to be disinfected in um, the um, microwave um, or through some boiling. Now, not all of them will do that. Some of them will melt. So you'd have to check on the on the product that you're using uh, and see which kind you have. Um, but really making sure that it's clean and not using it past one infection. So if you've got a sinus infection and you're using one of these devices, Really, I just recommend throwing that sucker out and getting a fresh one for the next time. Um, But really good cleaning of that. And then the absolute most crucial step for using any of these devices is to use the correct type of water. Do not cut on your tap water and fill up this bottle or fill up this neti pot and then squirt that stuff up your nose. Okay. That is not how we want to do it. We want to use either uh, bottled distilled water, or if you're going to use tap water, you want to boil that, like bring it up to a boil, let it boil for a minute at least, and then please let it cool before you put it in the bottle and start shooting it in different places, because um, that would burn. So bottled water or boiled and cooled water is going to be the way that we prevent the transfer of any of these nasty pathogens into our nasal cavity, and ultimately. Um, up into uh, the brain cavity so that's kind of the moral of the story there make sure that you use bottled disti- or distilled which is is bottled but any of those waters and um, or boil and cool your own tap water at home but absolutely the use of an antipot can be or a squeeze bottle can be um, really really helpful for cleaning out some of that um, stuffiness we use it a lot on folks who just have kind of recurrent sinus infections even if they're not sick right now we use it on them just to kind of keep everything flushed out um, from in there folks who are dealing with a lot of chronic allergies as well it's a good option and it's medication free so you know very little side effects um, on that you do need to add the salt powder. It to the solution don't just shoot water up there that will burn um, and the salt actually helps decrease some of the swelling and inflammation in there so those are kind of your safe tips for dealing with um, a neti pot uh, if you have a question today i would love to hear that the number is mpb ring one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. 672 7464 You can email me as well. It's fit at mpbonline.org and I have an email that has come in um, from Jessica. It says, I've been doing a lot to try and get in better shape the past year, and it's been working overall. Recently, though, my back went out, which is not uncommon for me, and I was stuck doing minimal movement for about three weeks. During this time, while doing nothing that would gain any muscle, Uh, I gained up to my general maximum weight, but lost size down to my smallest genes. What in the name of science and metabolics could be going on? I love that that closer there. What is going on? Well, there's several different things going on. You've got your body's made up of different things. We've got fat tissue. We've got lean muscle tissue. We've got water. So when you're um, training or when you're using those muscles um, and eating appropriately, we're usually losing fat fat and building lean muscle tissue. Um, Lean muscle tissue also kind of helps store glucose and and water. So when you start to lose lean muscle tissue, which which is likely what happens when you're no longer using those muscles for whatever reason, you're sick or you're on bed rest or you just quit. Um, then when the muscle the lean muscle tissue starts to go away, some of the water also goes with it and you'll lose some weight that way. and then everything just kind of starts to shift around. Um, what two things that stick out to me in this email is, it looks like you've got pretty chronic back issues. So, you know, what can we do to address those back issues so that we can keep you active as much as we can? Um, and so, physical therapy would be um, one of the biggest things that kind of jumped out on my mind for two reasons. One, how can we strengthen the muscles in your core, which would be your abdomen, lower back, kind of your cage muscles, um, to prevent this? These kind of pulled muscle strain muscles whatever's going on in your back is that the better our core muscles are the less likely we are to have back pain and back issues and then for help and instruction when you do have a back injury what are the types of um, exercises that you can do to keep from losing the lean muscle tissue that you've built all during this um, this training that you've been doing um, so that, that would be kind of where I would go from that standpoint. The other thing I want to make sure that, that we talk about is not to give up. So I see it so often in folks who have made a healthy change, have um, – had really great results and then life happens and you have an accident you have uh, an injury an illness something happens and kind of side rails you you know derails you and um you break that habit of doing the healthy behavior and you kind of almost feel like well, what what's the point and so you've, you are maybe less likely to, to start that activity back i would encourage you please don't do that um, you know, your body is is gonna remember. Your nerves and muscles are gonna remember those exercises that you did, and and you'll be able to get back into it quicker than you would think you would be able to. Um, and so, don't don't give up. Just start start back, um, kind of how you started before. Once you're cleared from your medical provider, and kind of get back in the swing of things, and keep keep working toward those healthy habits. Um, you know, I had the same issue going on. I had surgery on my wrist. Um, let's see, tomorrow will be three weeks, and I was just slap grumpy for the first week because I couldn't uh, couldn't lift. I couldn't do any of the weights that I normally do, and I still can't do. Um, Uh, weights that are going to cause my wrist to move in certain directions. So I had to get creative on how I could still train some of those muscles without uh, injuring my wrist. And so we wound up working with some resistance bands that I could put on my forearm um, and still pull and train some of my upper extremities without causing any um, wrist motion there. So, you know, get in with a a gym professional or physical therapist or fitness specialist and let them... um, work with you to design a program that you'll be able to do even when you've had injuries going on. So I hope that helped, Jessica. If it didn't, feel free to email me again and I will do my best to point you in the right direction. We're gonna go to a quick break. When we come back, I've got another email to get to and some more um, in the news items to talk about. But I really wanna talk with you. Whatever questions or comments you have, give me a call. My number is 1-877-MPB-RING. It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. 672 7464 Be back after the break. Healthy and fit on MPB think radio I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell and we are doing open topic today so if you have a question or a comment that you would like to discuss our number is 1877 MPB ring and my email is fit at mpbonline.org we've had several great emails come in this morning uh, as well as a couple calls and we would love to talk with you today or to get that email. So please don't hesitate to go ahead and send those in or give me a ring. We've also been going through some um, newsworthy health topics that have been floating around in the media the past couple of weeks. We've really covered kind of infection spread with little kids, and then most recently this amoeba story with the neti pot and the safe tips for using that. That leads me into the next thing that has been in the media that... As a, you know, somebody who practices preventive medicine, um, this one hurt my heart a little bit, um, and it is the flu shot rates that uh, we have currently going on right now. And of course, it is flu season. One of the tools in the toolkit for the prevention of the flu is uh, the flu shot. And so there is a, um, a story that came out about two days ago um, based off a survey that was done um, on adults about whether they had gotten the flu shot or not and you know whether they intended to get the flu shot and what the uh, reasons behind not getting the flu shot were. And so um, 40%, so almost a half of uh, adults in the United States uh, do not plan on getting the flu shot this year. That's a healthy chunk of folks um, that are, are not planning on getting the flu shot. Now, there are definitely folks who can't, people who may be allergic to components in the flu shot or have had serious reactions um, to the flu shot in the past, or people who um, may be so immunocompromised that they're not able to take certain vaccines, Um, although the flu shot, uh, most folks uh, um, from that standpoint can take that. The reasons listed behind them, and I want to go through some of those, is the first is um, 36% of folks don't. So they would not get the flu shot because of side effects. Um, And so that that was the highest ranking um, one on here uh, was side effects and so the majority of folks for side effects either they have none or they have a little um, kind of muscle soreness at the injection site maybe even a little knot right there some redness around the area those can all be um, treated with you know Tylenol or Motrin if you're able to take those things and then a warm compress so just you know warm bath cloth um, or one of those um, little um, you know heat wrap thermocare heat wrap type things placed on the area can help with some of that soreness um, from that standpoint um, that kind of leads into the next biggest reason why folks don't get the flu shot and the one that makes me want to actively bang my face against the wall is that um, I, I get the flu from the flu shot 31% of people stated that they would not get the flu shot because they always get the flu from the flu shot so let's, let's talk about that a little bit because you, you can't. You cannot get the flu from the flu shot. It is not a live virus. Now, flu mist, which is the nasal mist um, flu vaccine, is a live virus. And so theoretically, you could get it from that if you were immunocompromised. We don't use that particular delivery device a whole lot. It actually wasn't even utilized at all last flu, flu season. Um, but most folks um, just get the regular flu shot, the actual injection, and you cannot get the flu from that. What can, in fact, happen is um, kind of a gap in coverage when you are susceptible to the flu. So from the time you get the flu shot until you are kind of fully protected with all of the antibodies that are generated from that vaccination, it takes about two weeks, okay? the incubation period on the flu, meaning from the time you get it, get exposed to it until the time you become sick is much, much, much shorter than that. One to two to three days on that usually. So you could go to the doctor's office, get your flu shot the next day, get exposed to the flu and get the flu because your vaccination was not um, not fully working yet. And so a lot of people then associate that with I got the flu from the flu shot when in actuality you did not. That's one of the um, reasons to get the flu shot before the peak of flu season so that it is fully working by the time this sucker is up and circulating to full capacity in the population. So when is optimal timing for that? Well, we, we say let's try and get it in before the end of October. Well, that has passed. And so a lot of folks say, well, I guess it's just too late for me. I'll get maybe I'll get it next year. It is not too late. Uh, in Mississippi, peak season is usually start kicking off around January, February for us in, in Fluville. So it is not too late to get that flu shot um, if you are wanting to do that. Uh, and then the other third of folks that do not plan to get a flu shot say that is because um, they never get the flu. Well, lucky you. Um, I used to be one of those folks who said I never get the flu either until I got the flu and wanted to die. Um, It was quite um, significant. But even if you're one of those folks who does not get the flu, there are a a group of folks who will get exposed to the flu and not have any symptoms, but you can still transmit that that virus around. And so now you're just kind of uh, touching on folks and not knowing you're sick and infecting them and, and children who may not be able to take the vaccine for various different reasons. So, you know, really, I can't stress to you enough um, that flu vaccination is one of our um, tools to prevent um, the flu, spread of the flu. It is a deadly virus. It is not just the sniffles uh, we have already had one pediatric flu death in this state already this year. I can't stress that enough. All right, let's go to Jackson and talk to Jim this morning. Hello, Jim. Good morning.
0: I understand that one of the primary ways to prevent colds is by frequent hand washing. You're right. How important is it that you have hot water when you wash your hands? Okay,
1: that's an excellent question, and you are 3,000% correct that the number one way to prevent the spread of any type of infection is hand-washing. And so um, it's not so much hot water as warm, okay? Uh, Warm water um, lathers better is is really the reason for that. So when we're thinking about washing our hands, one of the ways we get rid of the germs on our hands is through soap. Not the antibacterial properties of soap. That that we don't even need. But the actual um, foam and suds that we generate with the soap kind of traps some of those germs and helps us wash them away. And so warm water lathers better than cold water does. If you don't have access to warm water, cold water is better than nothing. Hot water actually can... Um, cause chapping of the skin and kind of little micro abrasions or little tiny um, cuts in the skin from being so hot and then we'll get skin infections from that so the sweet spot so to say is really um, lukewarm water where your fingers can tell the difference in temperature change where it's not cool but not hot it's just in that warm range is going to be the best way to do that Um, a fair amount of soap on your hands and then um, the right amount of time and the right amount of friction so all the surfaces of the hand in between the fingers underneath the fingernails and push that um, watch band up and get around the wrists as well rinse them really well dry them really well and then use a paper towel to turn off the faucet. That is kind of how you, how you wash your hands the nurse way and how I encourage folks to wash them and wash them for the right amount of time. So usually you can sing the happy birthday song um, about twice. You don't have to sing it out loud. My kids do. You can hear them all the way down the hallway, but you can sing it in your head and get the same benefit there. That help, Jim?
0: Thank you. I'm glad I don't have to use scalding hot water. Yes,
1: don't burn your hands off. That's no good. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. If you guys have a question or a comment, you can uh, give that to me now. You can email it at fit at mpbonline.org or you can give me a call at one um, eight seven seven MPB ring. All right, we're going to go um, back over to email, and we have an email from Kathleen who asks, "What's the difference between a dietitian and a nutritionist?" That is an excellent question, and, I, and one I know that a lot of people have because I get it a lot. Um, the difference is based on education and training. So, a dietitian to be a a registered dietitian, you must complete at least a bachelor's level program. A lot of them have completed master's level as well um, and done an internship as well um, in, in dietetics and then sat for the certification exam. So, lots of education and training and certification on that. A nutritionist is much less regulated. Pretty much anyone can call themselves a nutritionist. Um, they can give, um, you know, they can, they can make that claim. Now, there are certain certificate programs that folks can do, but at the end of the day, they did not require formal education usually to obtain that. So I could call myself a nutritionist, but I'm not. Um, uh, really, if you're looking for the source of the most accurate um, and scientifically proven nutrition information that is going to come from your registered dietitian, um, I believe that website is eatright.org. That is um, the National Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics website that you can go to and look for a licensed and certified registered dietitian in your area to help you. In the state of Mississippi, the only person that can build a specialized meal plan is a registered dietitian. So um, if it is eat this at breakfast, eat this at lunch, eat this at dinner to to deliver these macros and calories and all of that, that legally should only come from a registered dietitian. Now, healthcare providers and other folks can offer general nutrition information, help you build a healthier plate, but to design an actual meal plan that does come, should only come from a registered dietitian. If you need help finding one, I happen to know just a whole host of them that are absolutely fantastic and give you great evidence-based recommendations on that. All right, going to Long Beach, we're going to talk to O'Neill today. Hello, how are you?
0: I'm well. How are you doing, ma'am?
1: I'm doing just fine.
0: Uh, Thank you for taking my call. Sure. I have some questions about about, uh, more or less kidney failure. Okay. And, well, obviously I have it, stage three uh, kidney failure. And um, I was wondering if blood being in the urine is typical of uh, of that.
1: It can be. Depends on, uh, now, are you talking about, like, I actually see the blood, like my urine is red, or brown. it's just showing up on a test.
0: It's, it's, it's like off and on. My urine is like dark brown sometimes, okay. sometimes it's light brown, sometimes okay. it's right. like a dark yellow.
1: Right, and so that color can come. It can come from a variety of things. It, it can be blood in the urine that would cause some of that discoloration. Um, it's, in particular if it's um, kind of older type blood in there. And it's also can just be based on um, the amount of protein that's in there and just the, the hydration, your hydration status. So the less fluid we have going on um, in that urine, which in folks that have kidney failure, the, the fluid that they put out is often not a whole lot. And so that urine looks darker um, from that perspective. Now, as far as blood in the urine, there are multiple things that can cause blood in the urine. If, it, if we just find it on um, a test in someone that we, that we don't know they have kidney issues, then we just start kind of looking to see what that is from. It can be from an infection. That's one of the um, um, more common reasons for blood to show up in the urine. Another is um, from a kidney stone, kind of as it has traveled through the, uh, the urinary system. As it kind of scrapes and does things, you'll have some blood in the urine from that way. And then um, from actual um, injury to the the kidney, you'll sometimes see blood in there, in particular with some of these um, Um, foodborne illnesses will cause blood in the urine and then um, you know one of the other things that we look at um, with blood in the urine in particular when people don't have symptoms is is there you know a mass or a tumor somewhere inside the bladder that could be causing any of that so the first uh first rule of thumb when we see blood in the urine is we just got to start looking and seeing where it's from and start ruling things out so we get things like urine cultures and an actual count of the of the amount of blood in there and then sometimes we have to uh, do an ultrasound of the bladder and kidneys to see if that could be if there's a reason that way and then sometimes even a little camera up in the bladder to look around and see if anything's going on in there
0: Oh, I oh well that was well, that was uh, like very informative. Oh
1: well, good. Uh, I, I try to be. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I, I I did have
0: some testing. I had uh, ultrasound mm-hmm. of the kidneys and the bladder, mm-hmm. and uh, didn't have any uh, stones of either one. Good. Well, uh, no signs of infection. Uh, um. Now my nephrologist mm-hmm. uh, referred me to a urologist. Okay. Uh and and I he he uh. He did it i i suppose he i think he said it more or less as a safety precaution because uh my tests kind of have presented blood like, mm-hmm. over the span of about a year or so
2: mm-hmm.
0: and um i'm gonna be honest with you i i'm i'm it's it, it's got me kind of worried
2: okay
0: like i'm like a little concerned
1: okay have you seen him yet
0: i I actually see the urologist tomorrow okay and um i'm I'm concerned about uh the whole situation of what it could possibly mean mm-hmm. because, uh, I was, I i the only thing I know, obviously not medically educated. The only thing I did know of was kidney stones and, uh, or, uh, some type of, uh, infection like a mm-hmm. UTI or something right, like that. Right. And, uh, I've been tested for those things, and I didn't uh, present
1: those. Well, it sounds like they're doing exactly what they're supposed to do. They started with the the easiest to rule out first, which is the the urinary tract infection and the kidney stones. The next would be probably a picture of your actual bladder to see if there's anything going on in there that could be... I'm not
0: looking forward to that.
1: I know, I know. But we want to know because we want to fix it if we, you know, uh, catch it soon and fix it if we can. And then there are a group of people who just have... Um, they just spill a little bit of blood in their urine. We we call it microscopic hematuria. And so it's just a very small amount of red cells that are just always present in their urine. And we don't really know why, and it's not really a problem. We just want to make sure that we rule out all the other things that it could be. And if all those things are ruled out, then we just know that that's part of what your urine looks like good, because microscopic sounds great to me. It does. It's tiny. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thank you so much for giving me a call today. I hope that helps, and please go see that urologist tomorrow. Yes, Absolutely. Yes, Absolutely. All right, we're gonna take our last break of the hour. If you have a question or a comment, now is the time to get that in. The number is one eight seven seven MPB ring one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Be back after the break.
2: This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit MPBOnline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.
1: Welcome back to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell. And we've been taking your calls today for an open topic day. We've had a lot of great callers and a lot of great emails as well. If you've been deciding whether you want to call or send an email, now is the time as we are fast approaching the end of the show. That number is one eight seven seven mpb ring 1-877-672-7464. It just, it went right away. Just, just, there it was that is the number. And if you don't want to give us a call, or if you're afraid you don't have time, you can always send me an email at fit at mpbonline.org. All right, I got a uh, text question actually in from someone who was listening. And they wanted to know about romaine lettuce, they said, Can I eat the lettuce? And so the question the answer is, Maybe. So you will start to see some of those things um, making their way back onto the store shelves. It all depends on where that romaine came from. They did identify the um, area in California where that, the, the rogue lettuce came from. And so if your packaging is explicit about where it was harvested... Then that, um, then that should be kind of clear to go. Um, again, one of the best ways to know where your food comes from is to know the farmer that farms it. And so uh, we've got lots of great. Um, local farmers markets around and um, you can get your lettuce from there but just you know pay attention and on your labels and make sure that you're um, getting one uh, not from that area of the country all right let's go quickly to the phone lines and get this last caller this is fred and mobile good morning fred fred no fred yet oh fred
0: yeah can. here we are
1: i can how can i help you today
0: Okay, I go to a urinologist, uh-huh. and he's recommended that I have a UroLift procedure. Okay. Are you familiar with
1: that? A UroLift? He's talking about a, like a suspension?
0: Yeah, where they band the prostate gland and squeeze it.
1: Wow, that sounded... That sounded not great when you said it. Like I just had a mental picture of that. But yeah. what what are, all are they are they treating an enlarged prostate and kind of urinary type dribbling symptoms and stuff? Right. Yeah, yeah. For you know, for some folks, if you know, if medication has not been um, appropriate or not you know not produced enough relief, then that can be one of the better options out there.
0: Well, uh, I'm concerned about why like I say they put a band around it mm-hmm. more. And squeeze
1: it, mm-hmm.
0: and doesn't that shut the blood off?
1: They, I mean, with with procedures that are that they're doing like this, they have it. You know, there's a fine line between how much pressure will relieve symptoms and how much pressure will do other things. But they've got it pretty pretty well laid down to, to how it will work. So, you know, I don't think that that would be the concern that I would have there. You know, if this is what they're recommending as the next best step. Um, mm-hmm.
0: What
1: concern would you have? Um, Just that we've looked at everything that we can do that's non-surgical. You know, we always want to look, you know, if there are things that we can do to relieve symptoms that are not surgical. But if we're to the point where they're recommending that, then they're probably have exhausted those things uh, as well. Um, You know, if you're uncomfortable with that, there's always the option to get a second opinion before you have surgery, to see a different urologist, to have them look at everything and, and, you know, make sure that they think that that's appropriate.
0: All right. Thanks
1: a lot. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Thank you for giving us a call all right um, real quickly before we run out of time I want to get to one other foodborne illness that's been in the news lately so we talked about the romaine lettuce um, the next is raw cookie dough so everybody likes to grab a spoonful of raw cookie dough before it goes in the oven um, and you know why is that a bad thing we used to just think about the eggs and so you know we've had folks who've made eggless cookie dough and and eaten that there are um, different recipes out there for, you know, little cake pop truffles that are with not cooked cake. They're with just the cake mix that you mix with cream cheese and all this kind of thing. Um, That is not safe either. So it's not just the eggs. It is the flour. Um, Raw flour is not processed in a way that it will kill off um, some of these pathogens in particular E. coli, which will make us very, 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 very ill. So it is not just the eggs, which would of course give you salmonella, but it is the flour as well. So no raw doughs, whether it be cookie dough, pie dough, brownie dough, any of that type of thing is not going to be good for you. We see folks make cookie dough um, sometimes and then stir that into ice cream batter and all this kind of good stuff. Any of those doughs that are not cooked Have the potential to transmit infection to you Now there are some ways um, That you will see uh, To go around that Which includes putting that flour in the oven And cooking it for a little bit of time I think that sounds a little bit weird And like I might burn some flour But that can be one technique out there But just put your cookies in the oven, get them cooked, and then eat them. So I hope you've um, learned something today on Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit. If you didn't get a chance to get your question in, you can send me an email at fit at org, and I'll be happy to answer that question or get you more information for that thank you for tuning in and for all of our callers and emailers and thank you to jay white my amazing producer hope you have a great monday thanks for listening to southern remedy healthy and fit